This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. This is Barry Swarenstein, CFO of 5.9, and you are listening to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 465. Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. Ever so often, we feature a finance leader whose singular career path placed them at key inflection points in business history. Yext CFO Steve Cakebread is one such finance leader. Having jumped from one technology revolution to the next, Steve's remarkable timing and career experiences sends us searching for answers. We begin after these words from our sponsor. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does your need to adapt, your need to evolve, your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Your finance leadership? Yeah, great. I think that's a great question because 
reflecting on this somewhat, it's uh, kind of fun to see the things that I've done and the things that uh, caused me some grief. First off, I think it's getting involved in technology in the financial area. And uh, as you mentioned, working with Hewlett Packard, it gave me an opportunity in a startup effectively uh, for a $200 million business when I joined. I was there until it, it was about $18 billion. So one of the key things is to watch a business grow and see how it changes over time in that time of growth pattern. Um, and it afforded me an opportunity to uh, to gain experiences within a company without having to leave companies. So you got familiar with the people you were working with. They got familiar with my skills and kept having me move around to different jobs. Now, quite frankly, my trick there was I took a job for a promotion that had been open for six months or more because nobody else wanted to do the job because they thought they would fail or was too hard. So I figured if nobody else wanted it, I couldn't possibly screw it up any worse than it was. So I was a, it, it helped me learn to be a risk taker in roles that I might not have experience, but also proved I could make a difference and improve operations over time where others didn't. Uh, the second part of um, my career step, and it was a big one, was U.S. companies were just starting to go international. And I got afforded an opportunity, again, within Hewlett-Packard, to go out and work in Asia-Pacific for two tours of duty, both five years each. So first five years was in Hong Kong, setting up Hewlett-Packard's entrance into China and India and Southeast Asia and getting to meet and work with executives, if you will, in China. HP was just starting a joint venture there. So I really got to learn what it was like doing business in China at that point in time and uh, have followed that up. And that's been one of the strengths of my, if you will, background is people were always saying, well, you have international business experience. And, yes, I do because I spent 10 years in Asia probably, um, you know, setting up businesses and learning how to deal with different cultures, different um, commercial structures, if you will. So that was a big part of it. Um, when I returned from my second international assignment, I was – fortunate enough to run into some of the founders of Silicon Graphics, they took advantage of me in my international experience. I, I ended up being the international controller for the company for all the obvious reasons. But at the same time, it gave me a chance to learn how to move from a very large company to a much smaller company. Uh, SGI was about $400 million at the time. So start to get your feet on the ground about how to go from very big to small, because that's a tough transition for most people managing their careers. And that afforded me a chance to figure out how to do that in a rapidly growing tech company. And then from there, very, very fortunate to um, go up and meet with Carol Bartz at Autodesk. They were looking for a CFO. And obviously, and we've all been through this as CFOs, the first requirement is, well, have you worked with Wall Street? Well, you don't work with Wall Street until you do work with Wall Street. And the Autodesk opportunity was a transition from the CFO at Autodesk going to be the chief operating officer. And so I was fortunate to, to work well with Carol and Eric Kerr, who was the then CFO moving to CLO, and got a huge amount of coaching and experience working with Wall Street, meeting the investment community, meeting the sell side community. And quite frankly, the people I talk to today are a majority of the people that I started and got introduced to through my original um, uh, CFO role with Carol and Eric at, at Autodesk. Um, from there, after four years, we started putting in, and Carol was somewhat of a visionary at that point in time, the new SaaS model, if you will. We were shifting from selling box software 
to starting to sell subscriptions and um, had an opportunity to start the fundamentals of that with her. And um, that led me uh, through some dialogues to a conversation with Mark Benioff, who was just getting ready to start Salesforce, thought his business model would be best under a subscription model. And uh, through the experiences at Autodesk, he'd heard we were starting subscriptions, so called me, and uh, we got together and, and kind of created history there. I joined Salesforce at $20 million in revenue, 65 employees. I was probably number 66 or 67 at the time. And he and I just sat down and, you know, detailed out what we thought a subscription software business should look like. And within three months, implemented that, went from billing monthly to billing annually, and, uh, you know, made history, quite frankly. I mean, the company obviously has been wildly successful in the cloud, went through a number of of iterations of how do you how do you explain to people something new and uh, learned a lot from that not necessarily on the financial side but you do have to communicate with Wall Street and you have to understand what your business model is and how it is and we had a relatively new business model so again I got to work with all the people I met at Autodesk at Salesforce explaining a completely new business model to them and uh, with the credibility and the trust that we had I think over the Ten years there, Salesforce did quite well. Uh, at the end of ten years, one of the things I'd read in an article in Forbes was CFOs have a half-life of about three and a half years, and I'd been there ten, so I decided to take a bit of a break, but um, was still too young. One of the things that uh, I've learned is I think your career really starts in the mid-40s, and I was in my mid-40s, late-40s, and so I got back into game and joined Pandora and started the IPO there, mostly to get into the internet space, took them public and did that, but found that I was probably better suited to technology and not so much um, music and entertainment. I couldn't play an instrument, can't sing a song, and I wasn't ever going to learn that, so um, stepped back from Pandora and ended up in uh, 2014 working with Howard Lerman at Yext, and again, another opportunity to work with a great young founder and learn a new business, create a new business, and build a team to take a company public. And um, here's where I find myself five years later with Yext. And, yeah, again, working on a do business model, trying to explain to institution investors how it works and why it works and why it's so important. But we're creating a new category, and it's using all of my business skills, international because we're expanding the business globally, um, domestically in terms of understanding how to deploy sales, direct sales reps across the United States, positioning, because you do have to position Salesforce and Pandora and Hewlett Packard. And, oh, by, by the way, my family's business in the wine, that's all build a brand and position it. So all of those business aspects have kind of put, put in the pot and mixed it up, and I've been very fortunate to end up at Yext and get to try out all the stuff that I've learned over my career. What struck me two things. One is, is that you made an investment every place you went, and, and, and the companies you mentioned, Hewlett-Packard, Silicon Graphics, Autodesk, Salesforce, these were not one-year stints, and, and sometimes when we hear biographies very quickly, we, we don't understand that. No, you are in making an investment of time all along the way. Clearly, you're learning something, and every experience is, is uh, worthwhile to you, I would imagine. The other point uh, that you uh, underscored, I think, is there are things happening. You were back at Hewlett Packard. The PC is just being born in Silicon Valley. Uh, you go from a desktop era, uh, you, you straddle it into uh, 
uh, high-definition graphics and in, into the cloud and into streaming. Um, so unlike uh, so many other executives whose careers sort of get, I don't want to say, well, maybe trapped in one era and they can't reinvent themselves, you steadily reinvent yourself in some ways uh, for the next era. Uh, and maybe reinvention is not the right word, but you're able to evolve with the technologies, which is something we don't always see. And uh, I'm not sure um, what characteristics you have as an executive that you think perhaps enabled you to do that. Yeah, that's a great observation and a great question. Um, I had a chance to be mentoring somebody recently, and they asked a similar question. There's a couple things that have helped me along the way. First off, when I was at Hewlett Packard, the first division that I worked at with them, we were making atomic clocks and foyer analyzers. Sounds mind-boggling, the technology's high-end, etc. But when I went out on the production line, I found out that, you know, normal people were building these things. They were in their 40s and 50s building atomic clocks. And that's when I realized that technology is great, and, and our atomic clocks, at the time, were going into submarines. They were going into the NASA space program. So it was really high-end technology important to be used. But I also got over some of the fear of technology because I went out on the production line and actually did two swing shifts of assembling clocks. Good to say 50% of what I built actually worked. The other 50% I'll just attribute to I'm left-handed and screwing stuff together is a challenge for me. But it's a combination of losing the fear of technology but also being curious about what that next generation technology is. And so you're right in that I've kind of progressed, but it was also the industry was progressing at that time as well. So I got to follow that through and make those moves. I did. I, I felt myself was a financial professional that could help run a business, not necessarily specialized in technology. And to that point, I actually took the job at Pandora because I had been traditionally – HP, Autodesk, et cetera, in B2B business selling. And Pandora clearly was not that. It's streaming music, but it was new technology in streaming music. And so I could use the technology to move to a different industry with my financial background of that company's desire to go public. The going public process and running a business afterwards aren't really that different. So I got to learn a new business, and that's what Pandora gave to me. But I got to give Pandora my financial experience and how to run a business and how to get, get a business public. So there's a marrying of a little bit. You give what you have experience to get back something that you get to learn. And I've just been fortunate enough to be able to do that in all my steps. And this one at, at Yex is a combination of we do B2B cloud services selling, but we're totally addressing and affecting the end user customer for our particular customer. So it's a merriment. Uh, B2B selling and end-user consumer business that I found in Yax. And it kind of, to your point, it's just been stepping stones across all of that. Let's, let's uh, ask you a little bit about, yes, then stepping into this role with all these years of experience with so many companies that grew as you joined them, uh, you would know the talent that's necessary to build your team. You stepped into the Yex role, and what is the sort of uh, 21st century <laughs> finance team that you want to establish here? What are, what are the skills? Uh, tell us a little bit about the team you'd like to, you'd like to build. Yeah, great question. And the, the team building is one of the key satisfaction points for me, the teams that I put in place at Salesforce. Some of the people that joined me a year into 
the job at Salesforce are still there as executive vice presidents. Uh, some of the people at Pandora, although Pandora shifted around a little bit, are world-class executives at other companies. And then the team at Pandora, um, same kind of thing. I think what you're looking for is individuals that are somewhat of a risk taker, highly skilled in both business and, and the technology, in our case, financials. But as important, and I've always maintained this, I, know, I, I was a practicing CPA for two years in one day. And, um, you know, the public accounting firm I went with suggested I didn't know anything about accounting, which is probably true, but I know the basics of accounting. But what really became, becomes important in companies is your ability to understand systems and processes. Because the fact of the matter is nobody wants a career that's just moving data from one Excel spreadsheet to another. You want a career where you can put in some systems, automate the, the grunt work, if you will, and allow yourself to look at details and data to add value to the business. So when I'm building up teams, I'm looking for people that are going to be committed for a while. In, in this year, you know, my year at HP was 18 years. My year at Salesforce was 10. Um, so I want them to be there for a while. Obviously, life has changed. If I can get three to five good years out of somebody, I think that's great. I'll also remind them that their career started in their 40s. So if you're before that, build experiences and backgrounds and, and networks of people that you know and not worry too much about job titles and all the other stuff because it's the background and experience that will move you forward. But when I'm building teams, and even in New York, I, I moved from California to New York. If the expo is in San Francisco, I build a world-class team overnight because of the people that I've met and been fortunate enough to work with. When I moved to New York, I don't know anybody in New York. So it really forced you to sit down and say, what type of individuals do you want? They need to be hardworking. Startups are not easy. They need to be long-skilled long players. They need to do, do more than one job. And so it's that kind of diversity of their experiences that they could bring to the company, the tenacity to stick with something if, even when things are not necessarily going great, and the ability to understand process and systems have been the couple things that I really look for. And quite frankly, be a nice person. You know, I've, I've learned too long and too early ago that screamers as leaders and screamers as participants don't really get anything done. So we look for people that are fun to be with, that are enjoyable. Um, we all have our differences in terms of how, you know, we might engage with individuals, but at least you're present and you're a nice person. Um, that's the type of people that I'm looking for. So tell us something of what is it that led you here? What is this offering? And again, as somebody who has uh, correctly and eagerly sought to identify the next opportunity, and, and, and from your career uh, standpoint, it looks like you've done that correctly time and time again. What is it that led you here? What is this opportunity? And I described up front, it, it certainly sounds very timely. We're all very aware of uh, how making information go public, the risks and possibilities uh, but, but tell us, what is it exactly? Right. I, I think there's a couple things. One is generic. For all the people that I've worked with, the entrepreneurs like Mark Benioff and Howard Lerman, one is the passion and commitment to their vision. They, you know, th th there's people and entrepreneurs that see things differently. Um, my job in working with all these guys is to understand their passion and vision and commitment. But my real role is to help them make that a reality. And so I play a position that I, you know, I really stick to. When I started with Mark, he had a vision of the company. 
it's not always right, and it's a little bit off track, although I'd argue Mark has been 99% correct. But my real job there was to help him make that vision a reality and believe in that vision. And uh, I did. I mean, cloud computing changed the game, and I understood subscription accounting from the, what Carol had tried to do at Autodesk. When I came to New York with Howard, I saw that same passion, vision, commitment. He'd been at his business for a couple of years prior to my joining and knew that he could get a big opportunity here. But like Mark and like others, he needed some people to help him get it there. And so that's my first get is do you have a, do you have a leader that is so committed and so passionate and so visionary you can try and make this work and I can make it happen? The second part of it is is knowing that we are going to shift course once in a while. So how good a listener is he? Because you've got to listen to your customers. You've got to understand when things aren't working, and you've got to respond fairly quickly because at the end of the day, your business is only successful if your customers are successful. And Howard and Mark both have those characteristics. And then when you look at the business, it's not – I mean, startups are pretty ugly at $10, $20, 30000000 million. The question is, can you mold it into an operating machine and understand is it distribution that's going to make it successful? Is it engineering that's going to make it successful? Is it outbound marketing? What, what are those key elements with this entrepreneur's vision that's going to take to be successful? And if you can see those and, and they can understand and agree with you on those steps to success, then you just go, in the X case, it is creating a new category. I mean, it's darn hard to come and sit there and say, well, we see a different way for you to get your information public and make sure you control it and not the search engines control it. And so having, having those steps to build that communication, yeah, we, we still struggle with that sometimes because most people think the search engines are perfect and the knowledge is, is extremely timely. The fact of the matter is it's not ever current. And rarely is it always correct. So we found a niche here that we're going to solve a lot of people's problems. At Salesforce, it was different. It was change the technology under which people use business solutions. And that was, at the time, we called it utility computing, but that morphed into cloud computing. And that set the industry on fire. I mean, most companies are, and the bigger ones are still not transitioned to cloud, but they will because it was faster, cheaper, and more effective to implement. At Yext, search has gone mostly mobile, but in order to get the right information about your business to the public through mobile search and ultimately voice search, you're going to need structured data. And what we provide our customers is a structured database to facilitate that, and it puts you back in control because you're the one that controls that database. You put the data there, and we just make sure that it's published to all the various providers in the world. And in the world, to make sure that that data is right and it's timely from you. Earlier in our discussion, you emphasized how it was important that uh, Howard was a leader who was going to be willing to listen to customers and make changes. Um, so often, I, I think finance leaders uh, neglect uh, this aspect of the business and uh, are looking for ways now to do a better job, to listen to customers, to measure the customer experience. Tell us something about yourself again. I, I, I have a hunch that that's always been part of your uh, framework. And while it might not have been the traditional finance role, perhaps that's where you were different in certain respects. Can you, can you reflect on that a little bit? Right. That, that's a great question. I will just start with I am a classic introvert. I'm not one that likes to get out and talk about himself or 
do anything, but there was some training that Stanford University put on that indicated, and I was fortunate enough, even from my family's business at the winery, we brought in some high-profile um, executive recruiters to help train myself and the rest of my family members on successful executives. And one of the things that you learn as an introvert is you need to find the ability to put yourself out there for a while and make because you need to connect with people. So you can't be the classic finance or legal introvert. You need to step out of that space. And that was a great learning for me. I do it. I, you know, I, I need to go take a day's rest after we just finished a two-day non-deal roadshow with investors and stuff. And, you know, in these roiling markets, it's not always a fun experience. But I'm going to go take Friday afternoon off and enjoy a nice lunch and dinner with my wife to recharge. So one is about knowing yourself. But two is about being passionate about the business that you're in and joining your executives in sales or others to get out there and understand what the customer experience is, understand the challenges that a sales rep has, because at the end of the day, you know, I started a career in finance as a CFO, but I guess what I really enjoy is being the shadow chief operating officer to a company. Because in finance, you see everything. You know where the weaknesses are. You see where the failures show up because you have to do that to be able to forecast the business and where it's going and how you're going to burn cash. So you see everything. How sad is it that you see all this? And you probably have a good education and some experience in business that you don't use it to benefit the company and grow the value of the company. And so it's taken me a while to understand that. I mean, at, at Salesforce, I had the passion for the business, and I was known pretty well that they could take me out with customers because I could get myself out of my finance space and be customer-friendly. To be fair, it does help if your name is Cake Bread and you have a winery because the conversation always started with, are you the Cake Bread that's part of the winery? Yeah, I'd love that wine. So it personalized the conversation very quickly, and we weren't having a customer-sellers discussion. We were having a personal experience about how you solve, how does Yex, in, in fact, solve the customer problem, and how do we get there from here? So, yes, I've been fortunate to have some bits and pieces of a background and, and career that facilitated me becoming something more than just a numbers CFO, but knowing that I, I could get out and talk to customers helped me understand what I need to do internally to build metrics for this company that increases the valuation of the company while making sure the faux pas that you're always going to make are seen quickly and fixed quickly. I want to ask you about this subscription model. As someone who has carefully observed and executed subscription models, uh, as you mentioned, uh, as far back as Autodesk, it was a model that was being developed. And, of course, Salesforce uh, perhaps mastered and moved forward. So many other finance leaders who have had to take their, their, you know, change their models and move into more of a subscription operating model. Um, that model has continued to evolve. And you've observed it closer than most. Can, can you tell us um, – What's changed? And, and so much has. I mean, I think it's, it's been perfected in certain areas. It's still clunky in others, perhaps. Can, can you share some observations about the subscription model and, and, and what you're trying to put in place at Yex? Sure. That's a great question. You know, when we started at Salesforce, I mean, subscription models and the accounting around it were somewhat unknown. And, in fact, it was my team at Salesforce and myself that, went to the SEC to talk about amortizing commissions, for example. 
because the, the, at the time it was common when you paid a sales rep a commission, you expensed it. Obviously, in a subscription model, you're amortizing your revenue over the life of the contract. And I'll get into my comments about 606 in a minute, but at the time, you were taking down a 100, uh, 120,000 deal of recognizing revenue at 10,000 a month, which was required by GAP and which makes all the sense in the world. But you were also required to expense the commission, which you typically paid at the time the contract was signed, in the month you paid it. Well, <laughs> like I said, I'm kind of good in accounting, but uh, as I remember back to my basic 101 accounting class at Berkeley, it said you got to match revenues with expenses. So we put together a whole white paper on how the commission amortization made a lot more sense to reflect the actual activity of the business and its results as opposed to expensing commissions up front. And that got the model started in terms of um, sales commissions and what what component you could capitalize and amortize versus what you should expense. And, and we spent a lot of time um, with the SEC and, quite frankly, Ernst & Young, our auditors, wrote a preference paper to our white paper that said, yes, they believed it was the right thing to do. I found that kind of odd because, like I said, I learned that in Accounting 101 at Berkeley. So the controversy was a little bit weird, but we got through that and started that process. I think, I think what's hard is not all businesses, while we all try to be subscription businesses because we all know the multiples on Wall Street are higher, they're not all attuned to subscription business. But you can make them that. For example, at the winery, you know, we have a club. You, you know, you spend a year, send us the money for $1,000, and we send you bottles of wine. To some degree, that's a subscription business. So you need to be a little bit clever about creating that subscription business. Clearly, it makes it easier to run the business because you get cash. You can predict that cash, and you know what your revenues are going to be. So there's some real power in that model. As it's transitioned, people have used it for different ways, but I think it gets back to doing the basic concept uh, you buy a subscription, you amortize it, you get sales commissions, which is your variable cost against that revenue, and you do it. In today's era of 606, I think there's a little bit of strangeness that the accounting people are putting in where you have a contract, but I might expect you to renew that contract, so I'm going to amortize commissions over your expected life rather than the actual life. Yeah, I think that's a little bit strange, but, um, you know, that's what GAP requires these days. So I, I think there's around the fringes people are trying to intellectualize it a little too much, and um, I hope that at some point in the future we'll all realize that maybe we made it too complicated, even for our investors, and just go back to when you have a contract, you have an obligation, that contract's over a period of time, you recognize your expenses and revenues over that period of time. If you renew it, so be it, and if you don't, business is over. So. Um, I have enjoyed working in the subscription model. There's nuances that it's really important for the finance organization to both understand and make sure the business people in your business understand it too because the subscription revenue model means every day counts. Every dollar of every day counts, and every decision that you make that delays a contract for a day costs you revenue. So we have a saying at Yax, it's every day, every dollar, every decision we have to make happen. It's not show up at the end of the quarter. And, yeah, software is quarterly driven, but the more business I can figure out how to get in November for our quarter than January, it helps the company and raises the valuation. So educating the business partners on the importance of what goes on in a subscription model is just as important as educating the accounting department.
When we return, CFO Steve Cakebread shares a number of finance strategic moments for us. We'll be back. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. As uh, giving your lines of sight into all of these uh, historic organizations, um, at some point, uh, you saw something as a finance leader, as a senior finance executive, that led you to uh, signal a new direction to the team or the company, perhaps. Maybe it was a risk. Maybe it was an opportunity. When I ask for a finance strategic moment, what comes to mind? <clears throat> Great question. I think there was two. One at Salesforce, working with the management team, and Mark in particular, we were going to charge customers annually upfront for the services we're going to deliver. Because at the time, everybody did monthly and arrears billing. That You can't run a business when people pay you late. The classic example is a restaurant. It's really difficult to go into a restaurant, have a great meal, and then tell the chef, oh, don't worry, I'll pay at the end of the month. He's going to go broke. So one of them was simply changing the business model at Salesforce and sitting down with Benioff and going, look, this, we can make this work. We're in our way through that because customers had to be educated about the benefit that they got. And that changed the game. The company became cash flow positive, and we never looked back. I think at Yext, um, it's kind of taking that and then moving one step forward, which is I'm really focusing the finance team on building business metrics internally to each of the operating departments that will add value to the company if they hit those metrics and we can measure that value to the company. It could be simply, and it's not just make your budget, but it's make sure in this model that you hire people on a daily basis or routinely predictable so we can make sure that they're delivering after their ramp times. Because an R&D engineer, a finance accounting person, or a sales rep all has ramp times, and you have to pay attention to that. So we're building metrics to look at those ramp times, and make sure that we're investing at the right time to get people ready to, for our next level of growth. So this whole thing around business metrics, and it's not quite KPIs, it's metrics that add and increase the valuation of the company to Wall Street. And so we're working on those now. So those are the two kind of things that, I, that were aha moments for me. So, uh, again, as we look back, we always like to enter the mentoring round where we give our uh, guests an opportunity just to offer some advice to up-and-coming finance leaders. Um, and from the start, we like to try to inspire by asking the question, what is it now, after, after all these chapters, what is it now that's exciting you about finance and business? Yeah, great question. I think a couple things for me. One is, and we talked about this earlier, changes in technology. It's always cool to be part of that change and help a business, help employees in your workforce. In my department, you know, it's about you better learn cloud 
business solutions because that's the next generation of systems. The more I can help you get into the cloud and run run our department in the cloud and all the new systems, the better off you're going to be in your career. And so that's really critical to me, and it's helping bring the realities of business into the finance department. It's not just the accounting department. The accounts payable persons, we ask them to help us on community service. We ask them to come up with a project every six months that improves their process or improves somebody else's process. So it's really participating in that that I'm trying to get everybody to do. And quite frankly, that includes me, and it's just a heck of a lot of fun. We always like to ask, when you first stepped into the CFO office for the first time, and it might have been uh, at Autodesk, and again, I'll just point out, I mean, Carol Bartz is sort of a historic uh, woman business leader. When you look back, there are very few uh, women in CEO roles in Silicon Valley even today. But here you are. You enter that CFO office for the first time. And uh, the question we'd like to ask you know, what is it you wish someone had told you? Here you're taking on all of the, the finance leadership responsibilities. Uh, but, again, I'll, I'll just point out, it's, it's kind of an interesting person who you're forming a partnership with. Right. Well, I got told. Carol, Carol's fairly direct, but she was a great communicator. And what I learned, because this is, I uh, go back to the earlier commentary, everybody wants to hire a CFO that's worked with Wall Street. The problem is you don't work with Wall Street until you do, so that's rather tough. Um, what I was fortunate is she helped me understand how to communicate with Wall Street, both good because she's an excellent communicator, as was Eric Kerr, in how to say things, how to, how to answer questions that you shouldn't answer or how to tell politely of a questioner, gee, you know, I'd really like to answer that question, but I can't because we have Reg FD. The other thing she taught me is how not to answer questions and piss off investors. So. You, you kind of learn from the good and the bad there, but it was that communication experience that's also hard for, I think, financial types that are more introverted. They're not outbound communicators. She forced me, and I don't mean physically, but she suggested that our earnings calls, and, you know, we all do them on the squat box, needed to have a lot more energy. And I was fortunate enough to find um, a speaker advisor that worked with the likes of John Chambers at Cisco and Phil Knight at Nike, again, another great opportunity for me to help really boost the gain on the earnings calls over the phone and make sure that you're putting some positivity and some energy and enthusiasm into them, so much so that one time I was sick as a dog and I just drove in to do the call and started with, look, I'm really sick, so if I don't sound upbeat today, it's not because I don't love the company and what we're doing, but I have to get up every five minutes and go use the restroom. So. Um, the communication thing was the hardest, but also the best thing that happened to me in working with Carol at Autodesk. I, I just think it's interesting, uh, and you pointed this out, that you felt your career, in your late 40, it became clear that there were more chapters to write. Right. And um, I, you stayed at Hewlett-Packard for quite some time. And uh, like many finance executives, I think you built your career there. At the same time, I wonder if there was a... In a, a were you in uh, China with Hewlett Packard? Is that what you shared earlier, or was that later? Yeah, no, I was in China with Hewlett Packard. Uh, my assignment was to Hong Kong, but before I got there, I flew over to China with Dave Packard, and we met with because we had a joint venture there that was failing, and the board wanted to abandon it. But Dave had just been coming out of his role in the State Department, I think, and said, "You know what? China's the next huge market." And this was in 1982, so he saw something 
a lot of people didn't really see. And I was just fortunate enough to be part of that whole experience to help work with the Chinese in the joint venture and get them going. And, and uh, you know, I routinely go back to China and the transformations from what I was experiencing in 1982 to today are stunning. And actually, you know, congrats to them on the success of really turning their country around. What, what I'm getting at also, though, is I'm wondering, was there an itch to move on sooner? And I don't think there was. And I, I think, but we're, mm. we're led to look back now with this glamour around the birth of Apple. All of this is going on. The Apple comes out. Wozniak, I think, was at Hewlett-Packard when you were at Hewlett-Packard. Right. It's funny. Where, meanwhile, only a, a, you know, a few miles away, the uh, personal computer is being born. Um, so you're sort of in the finance department there as all this, what we would, I would call the glamour of Silicon Valley story or nostalgia is built around a lot today, anyway, looking back. And when you leave, that's when you really get into this, uh, this call it the rock and roll finance leader, where you're the VP of finance at Silicon Graphics, where you're with Carol Bartz at Autodesk, and where you're, of course, with Benahoff at, at, at Salesforce. Um, is there, looking back, is there any sense that, well, gosh, I should have jumped sooner? I don't think there was, and I think you've already outlined some of the reasons why, but what, what do you think of my uh, summation here? Yeah, no, that, that, I think that's a decent summation. I'm not sure. You know, I, honestly, I never looked for another job. I mean, it's kind of weird. It was like I, I was doing pretty good where I was. I mean, I was quite successful. Like I said, I took on roles that other people were afraid to take on and made them successful, so I was recognized at HP. The easy thing is the transition from HP to Silicon Graphics was made for two reasons. One is it was so high-tech and computing, which is the divisions I stayed with at HP. Two is there were a lot of people from HP that moved over with Jim Clark as he started Silicon Graphics. So there was, there was this people familiarity, and I think that's kind of the key. There's this people familiarity so you can make these transitions so you're not just showing up totally unknown to everybody and, and you don't know anybody. And SGI was like that. I mean, it helped that Ed McCracken was kind enough to take me in his Lotus down to SGI campus on a Saturday, and we could use their flight simulator to do F-16 jet fighter fighting. That was pretty cool. That was my interview. <laughs> so, I mean, and it was pretty cool that, you know, Mark met me at home in Napa, and then, then I met him in San Francisco, and we just outlined the whole business model to get Salesforce from $20 million to a billion dollars. On, a, on just a cup of coffee and a conversation. Um, so I wasn't really looking for all this stuff, but I was fortunate enough to have a reputation and be known enough in the Valley because I did put myself out a little bit uh, as opposed to be inward-looking in a company that people recognize the talent. It's also very true, and I'll just tell this as a side story. All those jobs were had, were, had headhunters. None of them did I ever get contacted by the headhunter. It was always a personal relationship that brought me to that role. And, in fact, both at Autodesk and Salesforce, when I reached out knowing that they had CFO opportunities, the recruiters, and to this day we always laugh about it, said I would never fit with Carol Bartz at, at Autodesk. I wasn't the right person. I didn't have the right background. And the same thing at Benioff Startup. They had gone six months, talked to 15, 12 to 15 different candidates, and they were asking me who I thought would be good. Well, there's only one me, so I thought it was the best. But, you know, it was a personal relationship and the reputation that started to help me get those opportunities. What, you know, you described yourself as an introvert earlier, though. So how do you 
form these relationships. And that's, you know, I mean, are, what, what would they tell us about you? Are you a listener? What, what is that characteristic that, you know, you think set your, your set your Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I haven't, you know, the thing about as you get into your third and fourth career here, you start to, you know, not worry about what everybody else says. And there was one gentleman that always told me as a recruiter, if you're in Silicon Valley long enough, half the people will love you and the other half will hate you. So um, don't worry about it. I, I do think it was just the business opportunities, um, the uniqueness of the technology changing. Like I said, we talked about subscriptions and, and, and putting that business model in at Autodesk, which Mark had heard about. Um, you know, we went to we were in the middle of the wars between NetSuite and Microsoft in terms of browser wars at the time, and just being able to meet different people uh, allowed me to at least pick up the phone and say, "Hey, I might be interested," or them ask the recruiter or pick up the phone. Mark just picked up the phone and says, "Hey, you know, come talk to me. I need a CFO." And I heard I heard you're not a bad one. So you know, it's, it's you do have to get your get out of yourself a little bit and be present. Um, the flip side is it's quite easy to do that if you're cake bread or cake bread sellers because everybody enjoyed the wine. And like I said, it, and you have to find, I think, I was fortunate enough for the winery, but it is about the personal relationship that starts the conversation that can turn into a business relationship. And so um, that's where I've been very fortunate. Well, uh, we, we are up to our final question, but I did want to touch on cake bread sellers with you. This is uh, a family-owned and operated company. But it goes back as well. Is that right? This isn't something that you've done in the last five years. No, it, the, it was family-operated. My dad and mom are serial entrepreneurs. They had their own automobile repair business. They enjoyed wine. My dad's a photographer. Um, met some people in Napa Valley and uh, bought the bare land. It was, used to be a sheep farm when we bought it, right across the street from Robert Mondavi. Got into the wine business. Um, I, I did become a little bit of an extrovert because we made all this wine and nobody was buying it. So we would go restaurant to restaurant to meet chefs, which we were grateful to do, and um, they would take the wine on the menu. Uh, most notably, Narcy David from then in Berkeley, Narcy's uh, world-class restaurant. And so it just built itself from there. Um, learned a couple things. One, one is entrepreneurism is tough. I mean, there was days where you know my dad was worried about where the next you know, rent payment was going to go and how we sold wine. And there's a whole myriad of stories that go along with that. But it also um, taught me how to do brand building. And the, the fundamentals is you have to have a good product and you have to meet people and the brand will follow. And um, he always claims that uh, the Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, he, he, he did that before Malcolm figured it out. But um, and he met Malcolm on planes going back and forth to Toronto while he was selling wine in Toronto. So, yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate to be, if you will, in the right place at the right time with the, the right individuals that have high values regarding customer experience and product. And um, I've just been very fortunate to do all that I get to do. So our final question, as always, is when it comes uh, to being a finance leader, over the next 12 months, and I should say, when it comes to building next over the next 12 months, what are your priorities? Yeah, great question. It's continue to build the team because the people make a difference here. And, you know, we're on a rapid growth phase, and, and you know, we're already looking at how we've set a target goal of a certain revenue size. We think that we're going to blow through that. So now you have to start to lay the foundation for the next generation, next size team, and that's about hiring people now so they're 
ready to go in the future. The second big part is change the systems, and, and um, nobody likes to put in ERP systems, but you do have to stay a couple years ahead of where your business is going to be um, to put in those systems. And it's also cheaper and more effective if you have some vision of the future to get the tools you need in today so when you're there, you're not behind the curve. So I work on people and hiring, and I work on the business systems and practices that we need for the next you know, five, six years of this company. Steve Kakeren, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.